Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to artist, sculptor and performer Chris Dobrovolsky. Apart from being a brilliant artist, Chris is an exceptional storyteller and in our entertaining conversation, he recounts his journey into art as well as his attempted escape from art school. He explains the influence of the deceptive nature of modern-day post-truth politics on his latest work, and we discuss the importance of experimentation in art, the emergence of the young British artists, and how do you measure what makes a successful artist. Please join me as we look at art through a different lens. Hello, Chris, and uh, it's really nice for you to uh, to come onto the show today. Thank you. My pleasure. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, we're going to be talking about, um, well, what I'd like to talk to you about as you're an artist um, is is people's perception of what, what artists, what a successful artist is. Um, I should have maybe prefixed what I said then. It's just like, you're a successful artist, but I should um, have... <laughs> <laughs> I Maybe should have... would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so I just like to. I know we've we've had a bit of the conversation previously, but I just like to really look at your work in this in this conversation to look at your work and the idea of or the idea that people have about art and artists or the, the perceptions that people mm. have about art and artists, what it is to be a successful artist and to kind of clarify, I think some of the um, misconceptions around, you know, art, art doesn't, you know, an artist doesn't just become successful kind of overnight. You know, lots of things are an overnight sensation. And then you talk to somebody and it's just like, well, I've been going for 20 years, actually, you know, 30 years. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, but before we do that, um, can you just, uh, I like to start all the, all the episodes with just asking my guests, what first um I, I, I just thought of something that's quite yeah. to that question yeah. of success. Yeah. And it was last year. So you know when we had the everyone had that massive gap in their career because of COVID. Yeah. My I got excited because I was invited by this art gallery to be part of this exhibition uh, in Plymouth. And yeah. um, and I thought, great, this is my this is gonna kick start after things after COVID for me. So I got all excited. And they said, uh, we're doing an exhibition. Um, this, this is how they approached me. They said, we're doing this <laughs> exhibition about uh, uh, basically kind of like they're explaining that a lot of ideas and uh, uh, developing ideas, it, you need that permission to fail, you know, sort of like make mistakes. And that's where <laughs> authenticity and originality comes from. So essentially the approach was we're doing an exhibition about art and failure. And your name was mentioned, Chris. So I was actually <laughs> going to be in this exhibition based on me being such a fantastic failure. And um, <laughs> then what happened was, and I actually started making the, the work specific for this exhibition. And then, you know, the communication with the art gallery, you know, broke down. I just didn't hear mm. from them. But eventually 
somebody said, oh, that person has left. Yeah, and that exhibition. Didn't we tell you that exhibition has been cancelled? Oh, my God. <laughs> and of course, I thought, of course it was. The exhibition was about failure. Of course it's been cancelled. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, um, anyway. yeah, me- yeah, moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, well, I think you do yourself a disservice there because I've seen your work, I've seen your shows, and um, and they are fantastic. Um, and your work is really original. And, um, yeah, before we talk about your work, I'd first like to... Um, to just to ask you what made you what what made you decide to become an artist but do yeah. you know what i mean it's that it's that thing it's it's what what prompted you to yeah. to go in that direction yeah i didn't make a conscious decision to be an artist um so the foundation course which was uh in the college at the bottom of the road where i live uh i had a i was finishing sixth form and suddenly realised um, I was going to have to go and get a proper job and join life. <clears throat> but I had a best friend from school who'd gone to do the two-year BTEC course at the college, and we met up, and he told me what fantastic parties he'd been to during his time on the foundation course. And then I realised on the on the BTEC course, and I realised I could leave sixth form and do another year on this thing called a foundation uh, and that way I could delay life for another year. So I went along to that. And it was actually just on that course. I suddenly realised, oh, I really like this thing. I think a lot of people, like at school, you know, I wasn't the best person at draw. Everything at school at the time was based on how good you were at drawing. And I wasn't, you know, the best in the class at drawing. But once I got onto this foundation course, I think one of the first things they do is, uh, someone always described the foundation course as a, um, it's a bit like the army. Uh, in the army, they break you down and build <laughs> you up uh, as a team. And on foundation, they break you down but build you up as an individual. And a part of that process was that they kind of like say, you know, drawing isn't everything. And they kind of like were quite severely critical of people who could draw to sort of get them mm. to rethink and think differently. And for me, that was easy because I wasn't brilliant at drawing anyway. Mm, <laughs> mm. I love the foundation course, yeah. And well, that's I, I doing it. well, I think that this is the thing. I did a foundation course as well, actually, at Manchester. Where was yours? Where was yours? Uh, Braintree and Essex, yeah. And I think at that time, so mine was in 1991 and yours was in, and did you go? Uh, 86, it started, 86 to 87. Yeah, and... And I think foundation courses, how they were taught maybe at that time and how art was taught at that time, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it was very much freer in terms oh, yeah. of in terms of what you could experiment with and mm. um, and how you were allowed, how you're allowed to actually fail. Because I think yeah. a lot, I yeah. think... I think it's really important, isn't it? That that aspect of, like you say, it's not about being the best drawer. It's not no. about being the best mm. X, Y, Z. It's about exploring things and also failing mm. because you're allowed to, mm. you know, because you're yeah. learning. And I think, 
you know, because you teach now, don't you, as well? How would you say that that has maybe that maybe things have changed over the years in terms of? Yeah, how- I mean, a lot. It's a lot to do with how you know successive governments have messed about with education and mm. classic one is that we all have to go through this pretense that um, education is a business. Mm. And it isn't. No matter how much you label it, it isn't a business. And mm. so with art, for example, uh, I mean, the whole role of the foundation course was to prepare you to go on to the onto degree and kind of like mainly if you'd come off of the foundation course self-motivated because you knew why you were doing it. And then you go for an interview on a degree course. But now it's just about we want as many people on our degree course as possible. Mm. And actually the... They've changed it now so that the deadline for the interviews kind of means that you actually don't have enough time on the foundation course to produce that portfolio. So people are just sort of like walking into degree courses without the, you know, the experience. See, a lot of people sort of say, well, oh, I could get straight onto a degree with, without a foundation course first. And it's difficult to tell an 18, 19-year-old that it's not about the piece of paper it's about the experience you have on there that prepares mm. And even when you finish your art degree in three years' time, no one will ever ask you what degree you've got. Yeah. No one yeah. will say, did you get a first or did you get a two? No one cares. But what they will ask is, uh, what did you do? You know, what's in your portfolio? Yeah. That's the mm. only thing that you're going to take away. That's not a piece of paper. That's evidence of experience yeah 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 and that's that doesn't fit into like that doesn't fit into the government's idea of you know business being a uh, education being a business yeah it's really true and it's such it, it, it is such a waste because that foundation course is really pivotal because it's really it was pivotal for you to mm. decide that actually I do want to be an artist you know mm. and to be able to have that time to explore and to to formulate you know an idea Mm. because I think this this whole thing about rushing people into into work or you know you've got to rush and why why money (laughs) yeah 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 I mean I mean look at how pivotal it is I me and, and a lot of people I know you know 30 years later you're still doing making artwork that you can track the lineage back to you know an experience you had on foundation course you know when you were Mm. a teenager yeah directly a lot of the time Mm. yeah yeah um so from that foundation course um and that that pivotal moment when you decided that you it was just like actually yeah I can do this I'd quite like to do this what mm. did you do next where did you what what was your the next part of your journey because this is also quite this is also quite uh, okay. pivotal so moment, the next part it? of the journey was um, <laughs> so as you know at the end of the foundation year mm. uh, you've got a portfolio and you take that to several uh, art colleges to, for your interview. And uh, in those days, what was different is that quite often the degree course would look at your portfolio and listen to you for half an hour or however long the interview was and decide, no, we don't want you on our course. Mm. (laughs) And uh, I had four art colleges say, no, we don't actually want you on Mm. our art course. So um, 
we I didn't get in anywhere. Um, it was <laughs> one funny part of it was that I was also in an art college band on foundation. So the other two people in the band who could play the guitar, uh, they were um, they didn't get in anywhere either. Uh, our oh. band was actually incidentally we called ourselves the Flunkies. <laughs> <laughs> Flunky by name, flunky by nature. Uh, uh, yeah. So it was like I, I went, uh, I took a whole year to come back and to um, apply the game. So um, eventually I was, oh, the other thing about, you know, we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s here, was that it wasn't, you didn't do your, your foundation course and then decide where you were going to go. In those days, it was like the lecturers used to tell you where you were going. <laughs> Oh, really? You want to go there? You ain't going to get in there. Oh, or yeah. Sometimes it would be something like, you know, your work is the sort of style that they're taking. So I, I was like, like this, I was, I was sent to Hull <laughs> to do my degree. Um, I mean, Hull is a, you know, people have a perception of what Hull was like. So it's quite easy to make a joke of, you know, it being quite a grim, uh, post-industrial city uh, that's sunk a fish. But to be fair, and not fair to the, the people that taught me there, it was a, it did actually have a, like a really good reputation. Mm. Uh, sort of, you know, sculpture, making stuff, which is what I specialised in. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, I was sent there. I hated it for the first time, but most of that was um, being homesick. I don't think I'd ever been further north than you know, <laughs> it switched up until that mm. point in my life. And, uh, and there was also, this was, you know, Margaret Thatcher was still in power at the time. Mm. They, uh, everyone in Hull, the locals in Hull hated people from down south. So you were sort of careful where you opened your mouth so that people didn't hear <laughs> that exact same. It was a bit scary. <laughs> I don't like Margaret Thatcher either. Please don't hurt me. Yeah, but yeah. in the end, you know, after three years, it was it was uh, what they call character building. Mm. Yeah, quite, uh, but, to leave, I think in the end. Uh, <laughs> but one of your but one of your works was precipitated, wasn't it? By oh well, a, a show that I saw was precipitated by your when you said when you got there you hated it. Yeah. So um, <laughs> you got... so so at the end of I mean, it was also it wasn't just. Um, you know, it wasn't just Harl and being away from home. It was also a, uh, we had this, somebody gave me this tutorial. It was some smart aleck kind of visiting lecture on people somewhere. And um, he was talking about, uh, you know, obviously when you come to an art course, it's, you're not really being artists. What you're doing is learning the visual language. And then he said, but you also have to bear in mind that um, as such a, young age you know early 20s and you don't have much life experience so although you're learning a visual language you haven't got much to say in this language which is kind of really pulling the rug out from under your mm. feet when you're like 20s so everything i say is pointless yeah. so there was that combined as well it, it you know how i found art college and how depressing um but <clears throat> we all there was also this kind of phrase that I picked up on foundation where our tutors would kind of always try and look, try and motivate us to go for that extra level of authenticity. 
And it was always this one particular tutor used the phrase, um, doing it for real. You know, mm-hmm. your real motivation for doing this. You know, that will lead to something innovative and authentic. And um, I remember being in Harlem thinking, what do I really want? What would doing it for real be? And I remember thinking, getting the fucking hell out of here. <laughs> so then I, I made this uh, this project. This was still in my first year as well. I kind of gathered up all of the driftwood I could find on the river the, on the riverbank. <clears throat> and uh, the idea was I would, I would build a full size boat, get in it, and escape from Hull in this mm-hmm. place. Yeah. So somebody said. Well, you could have just left the course and gone home on the train. I thought, well, yeah, that would have been giving up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This was escaping. I was still you know, not giving up. And, uh, yeah. But the, you know, the, I didn't get very far in the boat. But uh, <laughs> Did the boat sink? Uh, so, oh, there's a whole story, quite a story. Um, the, boat, the boat worked, actually. It was the, me and the two friends I had in the, in the boat with me. We realised knew nothing about sailing, uh, so we missed the tide, got swept off down the river. Uh, luckily for us, <laughs> as we floated past the docks in Hull, uh, a tugboat, the, the Lady Joan, saw us floating past. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the tugboat captain said, uh, one of the eccentricities of this boat was that I had a skull and crossbones on the mast. And he said that uh, we'd never seen pirates on the River Humber before. He thought we'd better come and investigate. <laughs> and as they got closer, they realised what they were dealing with. You know, three art students in a boat made out of scraps of wood. <laughs> they pulled us alongside and we kind of climbed out. But, um, yeah, the first thing that went wrong was as the boat, you know, then towed it, we were tied alongside. So the tugboat was then going back to shore. We were out in the we were out in the middle of the shipping lane. And um as it got you know, there's a big wash coming off of a large tugboat. Mm. But that was compounded by the fact that we were tied underneath the outlet for the tugboat's bilge pump. So at one point they were just pumping water straight into my straight into the boat. Yeah. And um that was when it got really because at that time it was also, you know, it felt it felt like a rite of passage. I was described as a rite of passage. Mm. And then getting rescued, you know, half an hour, whatever, an hour later, it felt like a bit of an anticlimax. But um, then, it, you know, it suddenly all became, it felt like a, you know, it felt like a bit of a, like a, a disaster movie. You know, when they send somebody back into a burning building in the film to create some tension. Mm. And a bit like that, but all very real. Uh, I noticed the boat was filling with water, so I climbed back in to rescue some things we had in there. And I think it was, you know, something to do with my the extra the water combined with my weight um, actually snapped the rope that was tying us to the tugboat. <laughs> and while the tugboat was full of water and me, the rope snapped, and then suddenly I was cast off downstream with the tide, with the tugboat going in the opposite direction. <laughs> Uh, but luckily, my friend Eddie kept filming. Oh, right. oh well, that was okay then. <laughs> um, and you've used this and that story, which is a brilliant story about your escape, escape from escape or attempted escape from Hull. Yeah. Um, In the show we're doing at the moment, obviously, that's a very abbreviated version. I just used mm. a few slides and uh, 
But the the interesting bit that I, you know, in terms of this conversation and the show is that, um, you know, I was building the boat to escape and then suddenly, you know, realised it was the last term of the first year. Of course, we were running out. To, art college was about to shut for the summer. So I built the boat in the college yard, knowing that I could climb over the fence um, while the college was shut for the summer to carry on building it, you know, effectively... Yeah, everyone else has gone home for the summer. I've elected mm. to stay in Hull, effectively breaking into art college every day to carry <laughs> on building my boat to escape. Yeah. So at that point, <laughs> I suddenly realised, you know, <laughs> there's something uh, inherently paradoxical, I think, about mm. the artistic process. <laughs> mm. Mm. Totally. And your and your artistic process, your work is you do a lot of building of things, don't you? You do a lot of of creation of. I mean, I've seen some of your uh, in the last show that you did. So, so for clarity for people who are listening, so you're you're an artist and you work mainly sculpturally, mm. um, but you also and also you're a teacher and you do talks mm. and. Um, and more latterly, although I say latterly, it's probably been about 15 years, hasn't it, that you've been... Oh, yeah. That been, crept up, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. You've been performing um, uh, your stories, stories about your art and your mm. life. Yeah. Sort of small and, art centres and theatres, yeah. And so the first one that you did was about the incident with the boat, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that was God, the first one I did was, uh, yeah, it was about the boat and then how the boat led onto a, a pedal car mm. and then a hovercraft made out of plastic bottles that washed up on the beach. And it, you know, the penultimate vehicle was an aeroplane. So I did this thing. <laughs> it's insane. So you built an aeroplane. Yeah, this was, cut, yeah. Have you not seen that? I've seen. I saw the yeah. show. I couldn't. I've, yeah. I'd forgotten the end was the aeroplane because yeah, it was a long time ago. I saw it. I think it was two thousand and eight or something. Or it's longer than that. Two thousand six. Yeah. I went yeah. to two thousand six, and then uh, yeah, did this, and it was a two-hour show. Two-hour show interval mm. of me the slides and uh, you know, and, and proper Super Eight films because Super Eight films made it. That bit more authentic. Yeah. But yeah. it was also really because I didn't know how PowerPoint worked and <laughs> didn't trust video projectors because <laughs> they never seemed to work. And um, yeah, I mean, you'd never get away with. I, mean, I can't but now I look back, I can't believe I was doing a two hour show. Yeah. It was impossible to market, you know, to say, you know, you, you read the blurb and it says, yeah, a man was on a bus. <laughs> A, a double-decker bus, so small audiences. And it was like a, a man will sit on a bus and talk about himself for two hours. <laughs> Would you really want to go to that? <laughs> <laughs> and amazingly, yeah. people did. <laughs> it's fantastic. So how was that? How So so that show in initially was in Edinburgh in 2006? 2006, yeah. Do you know yeah. what? I went to Edinburgh in 2006. Were you on that <laughs> what, bus? You didn't Were you on see that? It? I don't know. I didn't see that show. But um, I saw you at the junction, the Cambridge at the junction, doing that show, and that, that yeah. was. But that, I thought that was 2008, but it could have been 2007, possibly. 2007, yeah. okay. Um, uh, 
but that kind of characterizes your work this is it, it doesn't it this autobiographical um journey through uncovering your events in your life like escape from hull mm. and um or attempted escape from hull and um integrating obviously your your art into that but um and your latest show is uh can you tell tell us a little bit about your latest show which i've seen but be good for everybody to hear about that and and what's and what's behind that show as well in terms of your um in terms of your creative in terms of the creative process yeah because it's a fascinating show loved it yeah so um yeah so there's certain thing what i concentrate on you know actually going back to the the, the tutor who said i'm doing things for real mm. that's something that's always stuck with me because it works on lots of levels you know you kind of like um talk about truth to materials in sculpture you know you don't when you're making sculpture you you don't hang things in midair from uh fishing wire it's the thing we were always taught because that's kind of like you're pretending that the thing you've made is held up by the hand of god you have mm-hmm. to be honest about what the way things are made you know if it's going to be hanging it needs to be hanging from a I don't know, a proper rope, you know. So there's that level. Uh, then we're talking about four that's, that's, and that's also great. That's also great in terms of perception for the for the people, as you as you said there, you know, it's about about being honest, about yeah. seeing, you know, what yeah. we're what we're seeing. But at the same time, you also have uh, the quote there's a quote, a famous quote from Picasso that I always like to refer to where he says that, Art is the lie that shows the truth. Mm. So it's kind of like, you know, I mean, the easiest way of explaining it is like a painting. You know, it's not the real thing. You're creating an illusion of a landscape or whatever. But in that reflection of the real world, uh, that kind of platform frame, obviously, you you show show something of the real world that, you know, shows the truth, reflects the truth. Mm. That's something I've always thought. I kind of say that the work I do is constantly kind of going between the real, if you accept that there's a real world and an unreal world, you know, on those terms, I kind of constantly go between the two. I sort of play on that Mm. vague area between the unreal and the real. And then what's happened in recent years that I've found really difficult to get my head around is, um, you know, what they call post-truth politics, you know, People, politics. I mean, we always know that you know politicians lie. Sometimes mm-hmm. they actually have to lie, but um, it's kind of like a new area where it's kind of accepted that they lie. You know? Um, yeah. That's... We, and everyone, yeah. We elected in this country. We elected someone who was you know, everybody knew was a liar. You know? <laughs> and um, for me, that was kind of like a real kind of switch in my head because you sort of think well my my work is about you know you know what's true from what's lie and it sort of like felt like the real world and kind of like you know in my head the the real mm. world somehow reflected my art mm. <laughs> the real mm. world was a you know, you know an accepted falsehood which sounded bizarre so so i decided to go and explore that yeah you know. mm. mm. 
and the no, sh- no. and 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 you with do it with toys, and I thought it by toys. Yeah, yeah. So the, no, the show with toys. So yeah. toys are like um, oh, so like toy car, for example. The toy car is always trying to be, you know, a representation or a pretend real car. But mm. Obviously, when you go and buy a toy car at a car boot sale, it's sort of covered in been uh, played with, so all the tires are missing, is scratched, got a certain character to it. So it's already kind of occupying this territory between a pretend thing and a very, very real tactile thing. Yeah. So I told this whole show via slides of different toys, many of which are the toys that I actually had as a kid. Because I'm uh, currently, because I'm such a successful artist, I'm currently living <laughs> in the house where I grew up with my 91-year-old mother. So I'm surrounded by a lot of these uh, toys I had as a kid in the loft and in the shed in the garden so mm. I've utilized a lot of those to uh try and illustrate this kind of uh post-truth world that I'm trying to get my head around at the moment mm. yeah. and it's and it's uh, and as you say the show's called toy stories toy and stories. it's toy story toy stories yeah yeah toy stories yeah and um and it's very much so it you well it's autobiographical but also it's it's a kind of historic kind of unfolding i suppose of your family history and yeah. intertwined with <laughs> yeah um, i'm trying to think of how to put it intertwined with um, i would call it uh Skeletrics and Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Intertwined with Nazis um, uh, and Skeletrics. It's fantastic show. Where, so you've just actually finished that show in Cambridge. Is that coming back at all anywhere? Yeah. So the next show is next month in uh, Langport. Oh. Langport. Lang- and then very soon after, I think, I think it's the 15th of July. I'll have to check that. Check on my website, please. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you're then. Uh, then we go to Bedford, actually. Okay. So this, so Toy Stories is go- is touring at the moment, but and yeah. so it's mid tour, or are we near the end? We're still building the tour, to be honest with you. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. So, oh, it's brilliant. So people can. So I, I, so when I was in Cambridge, I saw quite an early version. No, I think. I mean, we were at uh, Brighton. Fringe Festival mm. in May. So I did a run of about six shows there. And I think I did a lot of um, development of the show there. But mm. I think that show you saw in Cambridge, I think that is going to be, barring like the moving of one slide from one place to another, I think mm. that's going to be the final version. I think we were, okay. we were happy with that one. Brilliant. And that's and that's going to be touring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. There's, there's about four or five venues on the tour schedule so far Pleasant okay. I think that's going to be in October oh okay brilliant well I'll come and see you there again again um, we'll see if I've got any better <laughs> <laughs> no I wasn't I wasn't saying that Chris um no but um but what was I going to say in terms of in terms of so what I'll also do is at the end of the show I'll we'll give everybody your your details and okay. uh, and and website and people can check things and you know I'll put them on the show notes so they can um they can come and see your work they can come and enjoy Toy Stories 
and exactly. um, <laughs> and scale and nazis and and yeah you're being you're being too modest it's a really fantastic show um and so in terms of um how you you when we talked earlier you said it it was which you've also just said a little bit there but it was like your perception of sort of interrogating or investigating your perception of how you perceive the world as it is or yeah. in in what form can you expand uh so in what form so it's it, i mean it's actually the, the whole it's a performance lecture that's the kind of technical okay. uh, for the genre that i work in <clears throat> it wasn't um again it wasn't i never decided to be a performance lecturer <laughs> i mm. just used to go into uh, art colleges and talk about my work and uh, like we, like I mentioned earlier, I quite like attention. <laughs> so while I was going into art college, I thought, oh, this is good. Like people listen to me. And um, so over the years, I kind of like, you know, developed this kind of, um, you know, emphasised the funny stories about you know, building a boat to escape from art college. And in a lot of ways, the kind of, a lot of the goals I had was to try, you know, drop in an anecdote that I knew would get a laugh. So and mm. uh, when I... I mean, I jokingly say, so when I write a show now, it's quite, I, I say it's hard, not really writing, it's putting the pictures in the right order is what I do. Mm. So, um, so this, 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 le- this show, so I keep calling, I keep calling them a lecture or a talk, really, it's a show. This show, and uh, probably the one before it was the first few shows I'd done where it wasn't kind of like me talking about what I've made. The outcome was doing, you know, a show, a performance lecture. Mm. So this one is unusual because it's just um, normally there's a journey involved. You know, I did one. You know, the last show I did was about uh, taking the family car to Italy, where my dad was in the war. Mm. Um, it's about you know telling the story of the journey you've made. This one was quite unusual because it was most of it was me just sitting in the garden shed in my studio. <laughs> Uh, trawling the internet like a like a slightly deranged person <laughs> reading about you know going down some you know dark holes like um, you know yeah, yeah, a lot of uh, research into Hitler psychology um, and I think that was one of the key things that the, the key takeaways I got from doing the research it was like um, when you look at far-right politics it's kind of the history of sort of say fascism is isn't politics it's anti-politics and what you end up with is the mistake i'd always made was looking at far right politics in terms of politics when mm-hmm. really what you have to do is look at far right politics in the term of psychology it's about manipulation it's that sort of like the politics are irrelevant in far right politics it's about psychology and manipulation and that was what i yeah, took away from my <laughs> dark period of sitting in a garden shed <laughs> researching the material. And uh, the medium I use is all these toys, which is quite strange. So, for example, there's a bit where I try and explain uh, the Umberto Eco's uh, explanation of UR fascism, uh, the 14 features of fascism, using the medium of scalectrics. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of a in the show it's a bit of a kind of like 
10 minute explain-a-thon, you know, mm. which is quite difficult to do. Uh, but, I, yeah, I, I think I get away with it now. I've managed to... Yeah, no, it's... <laughs> No, it's done. It's done well. You do. You do it well. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, you kind of like do away with um, things like uh, uh, the mis. There's, there's a lot of misleading imagery and symbolism, you know. So, for example, the example I use in the show is uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's you know, uh, at its core, it's a, a, a very fascist. You know, he is an authoritarian leader, but it's contradicted by you know some of the. Russian soldiers having um, Soviet flags on their tanks, which mm. like, doesn't make any sense. But when you explain it all through the medium of skeletrics, you do away with these contradictory symbols like a, a hammer and sickle, and then it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. And people will have to come and see it to really, uh, yeah, to really understand, yeah. I think. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's a brilliant show. It's funny, isn't it's it? It's quite I complicated, think... isn't it, to just... <laughs> Even yeah. in the even in the show, it's complicated. Yeah, it's it's a it, yeah. I think that's the thing. You you kind of seeing is believing. Um. <laughs> yeah, marketing has never been my strong point. <laughs> I even it's... say that in the show. I even say in the show. Yeah, my my marketing is shit. <laughs> <laughs> but this is. And and this this actually you talking about marketing now yeah. has just an art and marketing and marketing of of uh you know performance or or anything creative it really um i think the perception that people have around success and art and marketing is um i think that they think that the art somehow it's the power of the art that that pushes things mm-hmm. through then actually when actually it is also this machine behind that mm-hmm. which and the mechanics of that machine, which really propel the art yeah. and the artist forward, and an example of that is when we were talking earlier about the the uh, the YBAs, the Young British Artists. We mm. we briefly mentioned uh, in our in a previous conversation about how that marketing of you know you, we're talking about Damien Hurst and that that first. Uh, you know that first exhibition, wasn't it? The, free, of the... the famous Freeze exhibition. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think what I said earlier was just, I can remember being like a, I must have been twenty three, I think, when that exhibition was on. And uh, yeah, a lot of I mean, personally, I was you know finished finished art college, and I thought um, one thing I don't know what I'm going to do now, but I, one thing I know for sure is that I'm going to have nothing to do with art. Was my <laughs> <laughs> and I do remember watching it's probably that uh culture show or something like that. It was like a late night uh exhibition. Actually no, I don't think it was freeze, it was an ex it was a later Damien Hurst exhibition. That's the clock. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, you know, talking about, you know, when you see, you know, the, a cow's head in a in a glass case surrounded by flies. I remember thinking, well, that looks like a, a standard uh, art college exercise that we used to do on foundation. Mm. Okay? Just get a cow's head and draw it, you know, and all the flies on it. I thought well, that's just the same thing, but you know, taken to a you know, with a lot of a lot of money spent on production, really. And so I thought, oh, being an artist looks quite easy. Mm. It was years later that you realised it wasn't about. It was a uh, 
think somebody called it. It's the backstory. It's the well, not even the, no, that's probably not true. It's the it's the bit that you don't see is what makes it a success. And what I didn't realize until years later when I read something was that the incredible um, call it marketing. It was almost sort of aggressive guerrilla marketing that went in behind behind the freeze exhibition. So the story I read was that you know they didn't just put on an exhibition and invite their friends. They um, they put on an exhibition and decided who were the people who should have got who who they needed to contact. And they sent them. Um, they didn't even post them. Uh, they didn't put an invite in an envelope. They put an invite to the exhibition in a taxi, mm. <laughs> a taxi to the influential person, and told them to get in a taxi and come and see the exhibition. And that was just would never have even crossed my mind to do that. And that was where I thought the originality come from. But obviously, that isn't something that the work is evaluated on. It's evaluated on what you see in an art gallery. So a direct influence of that, for example, is the the aeroplane that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the aeroplane was, um, the wings of the aeroplane that I made were made from all the media coverage that I'd amassed over the years. So I had like newspaper articles about the boat, the hovercraft, and that papers the, all of the wings. Um, I mean, it's outdated now because um, what I was trying to do was bring bring all of that into the art gallery with the art. So you were uh, forced to confront, you know, what goes on in the background, mm. you know, the media, your exposure, and um, force you to look at that in the art gallery, bring that conversation into the art gallery with the art. But I say it's outdated now because obviously, you know, that was pre-internet. And now mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing that happens happens, you know, on your social media page or and also mm-hmm. and also my media coverage was shit, which didn't help, you know. <laughs> you really wanted kind of it's one or two sort of articles in uh, national newspapers, but the vast majority of it is like, you know, dumb uh dumb local newspaper articles with like a cheesy photograph of me sitting in front of a Tank or something like that. I, no, you do yourself a disservice. I think was the, yeah, said something else. <laughs> yeah, no, you do yourself a disservice, Chris. Honestly, but um, it's interesting though what you were saying there about about this idea because we do have this idea. I think still, even with this amazing amount of um, how technology has kind of infiltrated art in many in, in various ways you know i think there is still an idea about when 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 a visitor or an onlooker or whatever you want to call them, when the public go to an art gallery they expect to see something that is the perception is i'm going to see something that is on on the wall and is and is uh it looks a particular way it's quite a literal kind of idea a literal kind of uh idea about what art should look like and i think so when when all the conceptual art kind of this was at its height obviously there's a lot of backlash from people who are really kind of because it was something completely new and this idea of like uh, uh, what you ah, ah, you know uh, uh, this is what i'm talking yeah, yeah. for the general yeah. public the average person yeah. um 
and thinking that something is really avant-garde when you're kind of like, as you say, you know, it's just a rebranding of something that actually is a is a is quite an accepted um way of working in in art school um i mean on that subject there was a guy on that in my local town there was an exhibition um i think i was fresh out of college and i went along dotted along to this exhibition and uh, the guy made all these um uh statues out of uh, different kind of like figurative pieces out of welded steel but every piece he'd done was kind of lifted from a famous uh, art at British. So, like, there was a... One was obviously trying to be an Anthony Gorbley. Another one was trying to be a Glyn Williams. Glyn Williams mm. was a, our lecturer at my college. Um, there was a few other kind of, like, obvious influences. And um, I remember having a conversation with this guy, and I remember thinking, how do I sort of like for me I felt I needed to have this conversation where we'd get around to this notion of plagiarism and possibly you know go into an art history book and just lift in artwork from somebody else mm. uh, you know something dishonest or wrong cheap rubbish um but before I opened my mouth this guy just looked at me and was Chris he says yeah I know I've ripped this off <laughs> and I've ripped that off he just completely disarmed me this guy said I've ripped this off of that artist. Obviously, this is ripped off of uh, Anthony Corley. <laughs> and he just said, I just like making this stuff. And I know I can make a lot of money giving people this uh, sort of ersatz art, this kind of like uh, stuff that looks like art. And I thought, oh, and I didn't know what to say. You know, <laughs> In a way, he was being really honest in his dishonesty. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, this has gone back you know, quite a few years, I often turn up in like a provincial town somewhere and uh, I'm forever seeing this guy's sculptures. Wow. <laughs> Everywhere. They're mainly kind of like in provincial towns, you know, kind of like, because often if you, um, when there's a new build somewhere in, a, you know, like a housing estate, a shopping precinct, there's this thing they used to call it the 5% or the 1% to art part of the remit for these new builders that you have to have a, uh, a percentage of the budget spent on public art and what you end up with is the people who are making these choices are you know people who work in local government you know and the last mm. thing they want is real art <laughs> they want you know something that's going to be inoffensive uh, function not break down not fall over and hit someone and uh, so this guy this guy every time is right on the money <laughs> yeah and isn't that there's something what I don't know. It, is it dishonest? Is it? I think it gives art a bad name, personally. Yeah, it kind of like, um, you know, you often sort of talk about, yeah, I've seen art. We've got a sculpture on our housing estate. It's quite boring. You know, I think, yeah, but you want to sort of say, that's not real art. Mm. Mm. Because I think this is the thing. I think it's really important for people to, personally, I think it's really important for for everyone to be able to have access to real art, whatever yeah. the real art is, you know, and I think real art in, in my own kind of view is something that has come from the artist that is 
it's unadulterated. It isn't about trying to, it isn't about, and I've had this conversation with somebody the other day, and it's and it's not about the artist trying to please anybody. Mm. It's not about them trying to give people what they want. It's not about them trying to um be the best. It's not, you know, it's about it's about that artist having a connection with creation yeah. and creating something that has right. that has moved them in some way it's a personal i think it's always a personal yeah. journey and it's and there's a lot of vulnerability involved in presenting part of you mm, mm. to other people because once you present part of you to someone that's, else that's you know, where my motivation for doing it comes from but yeah, yeah. But then I, there's a phrase i use in the in the show uh, toy stories is that uh, I could say uh, it's that famous um, Groucho Marx quote where he says um, sincerity sells yeah. and if you can fake that you've got it made <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's that guy isn't it you know the guy that you just talked about Mr. Mr. Yeah. Sculpture um, <laughs> but, but, but that's it isn't it It's it's just I think it's that interface between, you know, our as I said, our perception, the, the perception of the general public about what art is, what yeah. successful artist is, you know, because mm. we could say, yes, a successful artist is the likes of Damien Hirst, who doesn't actually do any of his own art, but has all the ideas or mm. some of the ideas of perhaps, who knows, maybe none of the ideas, maybe he's just a brand now, we don't know, you know, yeah. Um but in terms of, you know, in terms of kind of the idea of of the the viewer, is it, you know, it, is it important to be understood? Because mm. some people might look at art kind of, well, I don't understand it, you know, mm. and and because I don't understand it, I reject it. And it's yeah. just like, well, okay, you you don't need to understand it. Huh? I think that's less, that's probably, the other, there's another thing where, Actually, that's probably less dangerous than the people who assume that they understand it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little bit of knowledge is actually a dangerous thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so, so it, it, it's so interesting, isn't it? This whole idea of what art is, what is, what is, uh, um, uh, not worth. I don't, I don't kind of like using successful actually, although I've said it repeatedly, but um. <laughs> Um, what is something that that works, I suppose, and and in terms of and for me personally, it's when I when I it could be anything, but if something moves me, if I feel in some way moved, and it might not be, you know, it, or in some way emotionally, I have an emotional response because it's that mm. it's that whole idea that actually when you are when you are looking at the art, you are. And your interaction with that art, you become part of the art. You know, you become part of the artwork. You in that interaction, mm. um, and that's what makes it live. And if something that's being presented to you, like like you say, is so kind of perfunctory that it's that it, it kind of you know doesn't move you in any any way whatsoever. It's just like, is that even art? You know, is that? Well, we used to, um... <laughs> yeah. When I, I so I did my. Um... MA uh, at the RCA, or, or RC, RC Doodar, as my mum used to call it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said earlier, it was kind of like the, the smart money. This was in the 90s, so 
It sounds very uh, cool to go to the RCA, but in the in the nineties, like I said, the smart money went to goldsmiths. We learn how to make art, the goldsmiths they learn how to be sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to what you were saying, there was that I remember we went along to Chelsea. Chelsea was the other MA call. And I remember we went to the Chelsea interim show. That, like, well, it might have been, yeah, their MA show. And I remember walking around the MA show, and it was like, you know, like with a lot of exhibitions, it was kind of like a lot of kind of like tight lipped people being cool. And, stroking, uh, stroking their beards, like all the beard, beards, yeah. beard strokers, yeah. And the artwork was all very cool, yeah, very very cool, and uh, and I and I remember taking that, you know, exactly what you were saying. You know, what does this give me emotionally? And um, I walked around this exhibition. And I remember, and this is not peculiar to, to Chelsea. This is like uh, something you could transfer on, project onto any kind of a lot of shows. I remember coming away thinking the only kind of emotion, the only thing this is, this artwork is telling me is, um, <laughs> I am clever and you are stupid. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I, I just feel stupid. <laughs> yeah, how interesting. Uh, how interesting. So I, kind of like, so I love to. In the nineties, I always loved to talk about, you know, go off on these kind of tangents about my artwork you know tell the backstory tell the process all about the process you know the mm. process has become uh, so many times it's become you know on the same path as the you know the final piece in the art gallery but especially at that point during the YBA period it was all about you know no process all about the cool piece of art in the art gallery mm. Mm. because that's the idea isn't it it's just like yeah. well it's about the idea it's yeah. the con the concept and yeah. and then the final piece, but no, no kind of. Yeah, I think I, I read a, I read a little bit on a, about Damien Hurst once. There was <laughs> I stayed around a friend's house and they had a Damien Hurst book in the toilet. So I was reading it on the loo, and um, I remember him actually talking about uh, when he made the shark, uh, and he, he made this exact point. He said we were only interested in you know the image, you know the the image in the art gallery. We yeah, there was, a, and he was sort of saying there was a lot of interesting process and backstory to making that shark. That he said that I didn't made a conscious decision to eliminate from the final artwork, and then he just started describing. He said basically, he said they got the shark from Australia or something. So it says in the book, um, they had a phone number and an advert somewhere looking for a shark. <laughs> he said that apparently, he had an answer machine full of. Um, Absolutely bonkers, like uh, bonkers uh, answer machine messages from people, shark hunters in Australia, talking about this, all this stuff they've killed. Would you like it? Isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much about the answer machine. Well, that's it. I was about to say, but that's such a fascinating, already fascinating story, because, because. You know, you look at the. Was, you, but that wouldn't that wouldn't sell that that sort all of that doesn't work in in because in those days it was all about the newspaper article, you know, mm. the image, 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 image. So, you know, all of that would never play into kind of like an instant image when you open the, you know, the the Sun or the, you know, or any other sort of tabloid newspaper. Yeah. You know. mm, mm. 
And look at that. And when you talk there, when you just said there about instant image, I mean, that very much ties into now, into yeah. the kind of world that we live in, which is yeah. everything. Because yeah, yeah, it was kind of like, because um, I think a lot of the YBA stuff relied on, you know, there was a, you know, there was an inevitability about you know, the newspapers would come and do some, always ask the kind of crap question like, is this art, you know? Mm. So there was always this kind of disconnect between people who had gone to art college and people in the real world. When yeah. No one would ever sort of pick up a book and say, is this a book, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and in Europe, so you go to Holland, no one ever no one ever said, you know, is this art? They would always say, is this any good or not? So yeah. a lot of kind of like the YBA success, would they would play on this kind of like what seeds on, you know, on a media kind of impression, there's like a, quite a negative impression. Like all of these people going, it's not even art. Actually, that gave them a certain notoriety. What they actually, you know, well, like they say, all publicity is good publicity. Yeah. Well, um, well, that, well that never crossed my mind either, you know. So I'd kind of like look at my kind of like NAF newspaper articles and go, oh, God, they haven't understood the art, the creative process. Mm-hmm. So the Hoppercraft is the classic story. It was like, you know, the whole point was about the landscape and uh, the plastic bottles that I built the hovercraft from that come from the landscape and uh, that story. And there was a point where I took the hovercraft on its journey and uh, I disturbed a flock of birds that were feeding on, feeding on the mudflats. And uh, suddenly I was surrounded, as I hovered across the mudflats, I was surrounded by these seabirds on either side of me. And I suddenly felt this transient moment where I was at one with nature mm. and the landscape. And um, I tell this to a reporter from the Daily Star. <laughs> and much to my surprise, when the thing came out of the Daily Star, it was like a not very flattering picture of me sort of like hovering around in front of the art college on this contraption that I'd made. Uh, the big headline behind my head said, Hover crafty. It's <laughs> not like Chris. And it was like the time of the Hopper Mower uh, advert, so a lot less bother mm. with It was like Chris Dobrovolsky, a lot less bother with a hover. <laughs> Generally said, uh, weirdo, freaky art student, waste of taxpayers' money. <laughs> yeah. I just sort of like found that really, I always just took that on face value. I just thought, oh god, that's a rubbish article. Mm-hmm. And I hid it away for years. And I, you know, what I should have done was kind of like, um, yeah, all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, yeah, and feed off that and go, I am weird and I am freaky. But again, it's well, just have to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it is that perception, people's perception. Yeah, yeah. So, but then bringing it back to what we I think you were trying to say was in now our society and politics what's interesting is that um this kind of post-truth politics thing it's uh it's not just about um the negative image now so like a I mean the classic one is the Suella Braveman and the um uh, Rwanda policy mm. why took me a while to get my head around is it isn't just about um People say the Rwanda policy is, you know, actually physically sending asylum seekers to Rwanda isn't part of it. It's about, you know, the culture war causing a distraction. Um, but it's not just about, you know, pleasing 
you know, the bigoted right-wing end of mm. the conservative extremes of the conservative party. It's also about winding up what who she calls the woke karate, you know, mm. sort of like a, to get people to kind of get angry and um, so that they can then point at you and go, oh, look at that crazy loon, look at him getting angry. Mm. Like Suella Braverman's classic lines, oh, how can you compare me to the Nazis when I have a Jewish husband? And it's kind of like it's about triggering that kind of extreme reaction, not just on the right, but on the left. Mm. So uh, I think that was the kind of like where you were going with the kind of like, you know, negative. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, yeah, it's, it is interesting that, well, yeah, that whole idea of, we need one. It's not just, you can have just like one group of angry people yeah. uh, or one group of people that is kind of uh, uh, championing something. But if there's, if there's nothing to rub up against, you know, that conflict creates drama. Yeah. And drama yeah. is the thing that we all feed off. Mm. You know, as I said earlier, I'm a drama queen. <laughs> I've realised <laughs> I'm addicted to drama. But... um. You know, uh, but I'm trying to recover from that. You know, because actually, yeah. that's what makes that's what makes life exciting for yeah, people. Yeah. Yeah, or yeah. exciting maybe isn't the right word, but that's what makes life kind of no, um, exactly. gives them something to hang their hat on. Uh, mm. If they're not, uh, you know, if if I'm not championing something or fighting against mm. something, what am I? You know, I'm, I mean, there's what am an I argument doing? for sort of saying, well, you know, don't react, don't react to this kind of like, you know, something like the Rwanda policies died deliberately to evoke some kind of extreme reaction. And you can't sort of think, oh, don't react to it. And you think, what, just let it happen? Yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of what's behind that the show Toy Stories is like trying to kind of like keep a cool head and just stick with yeah. the facts. You know? Yeah. Well, and, I, I, I think this is the thing. There's, there's a difference between reacting and responding mm. there's you know i think we can we can say uh, something happens and you're reactive maybe that doesn't kind of lead to positive outcomes but if something happens and and there's a response because you've actually or considered response that maybe then may lead to something that is more positive i don't know you know i don't know but um I certainly know my kind of own life. It's that taking a moment to respond rather than to be immediately reactive is actually um, uh, is actually something that has served me as yeah. opposed to, you know, my younger years. <laughs> <laughs> the volcano yeah. that goes out. But, yeah, um, like good advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But... Um, Oh, Chris, it's been so, it's been really good talking to you. It's been really, really interesting. We could talk for ages. I was just thinking more and more things that I want to ask you. Um, but I think the last thing, actually, that maybe I'd just uh, like to to ask you again, even though I was saying, oh, what what is success? What is, uh, what, what do you think in terms of your art and your life um, because we've talked about, you know, we've talked about what is a successful art. What does what does that actually mean? What does art mean? What does what does being a successful artist mean? Mm. Um, uh, and what and kind of what is that to you? Because you've been saying, you know, you you know, you said I'm still doing what I'm, you know, doing. I'm still making things. I'm still mm. creating. So yeah. so for you, what is that? Mm. 
well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think I said before, it's kind of like, I feel like I'm still waiting to be discovered. <laughs> mm. I've reached 55 and <laughs> don't have a pension. Uh, mm. But I don't know. I kind of like, uh, yeah, if I can you know, make get lost in what I'm doing, you know, Oh, somebody described art as a what do they call it a um, an, a a break from the, contemplating the inevitable inevitability of death. Describe <laughs> 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 this. I think I might have read that on a meme. <laughs> it's a break from contemplating the inevitability of death, <laughs> and it does it does kind of like feel like that sometimes. You kind of like uh, you know, you get absorbed and lost in, in what you're doing, and then uh, when the project comes to an end, after sort of like have this moment of depression where you sort of like the mm. real world encroaches again. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, I think. Uh, I recently went to, um, oh, there's a trip to a castle that I mentioned in the show, isn't there? Mm, yeah, I remember. There was a bit yeah. of the trip that I kind of like, that I didn't, um, that I got edited from the show. And that was um, uh, this lovely couple who invited me there. Um, they were, and the, I ended up having to spend two days with them like on their own in their castle. <laughs> and they kind of like um, uh, felt uh, obliged to entertain me. And uh, one of the things they sort of said, oh, would you like to go and see the um, the, the old lady's burnt out house? They <laughs> 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 um, said, yeah, the, when we got the castle back, um, <clears throat> there's a small traditional house that came with it. We call it the, the butler's house. Uh, there was an old lady living there. And they said, sadly, she died a few years ago. And um, we didn't secure the house. So some people had broken into it. Mm. And... Um, and uh, they were using it as a drinking den. And, uh, there's been a fire, so it's kind of. But we, you know, we know that you're interested in weird stuff, Chris. <laughs> I've spent the last two days with you. Would you like to go and have a, have a look? And so, uh, so they took me across the road, and sure enough, there was this overgrown garden, and uh, and this, yeah, like it was quite a wooden house, very traditional. Half of it's still standing, the other half was kind of like burnt embers. And I thought, oh, great. Urban exploring, fantastic, and I, and I remember sort of thinking, oh, maybe we can find something in there, you know. And uh, we went in there, and like he peered into the dark, and it was obviously everything was blackened from soot. But then it was like the further you went into the unburned part of the house, it was like you could see, you know, knickknacks on the shelf and uh, mm. pictures on the wall. There was curtain. Then the next thing I was in this, the old lady's bedroom, and. The, the bed was still made. The wardrobe was open. Well, yeah, exactly. And then it was suddenly going too much. You know, like get me out of here. This is <laughs> yeah, really felt like we were intruding. They hadn't told me they hadn't, you know, hadn't touched it after the fire. Anyway, so then we went back to the castle, and um, part of the trip to the castle, they did have a another agenda inviting me there, and it was basically sort of like you know they'd set up this uh, art gallery. And they kind of like, you know, angling round to sort of saying, you know, we'd like to offer you an exhibition in this. Wow. In yeah. So we, and they were so, and they were really, uh, uh, they were really cool because they had like a really um, dark sense of humour that I <laughs> do as well. And so the conversation was, they were talking about, you know, uh, you know, how can we show your artwork uh, Without you, is what they said, because we've noticed over the weekend that you tell these long-winded stories, you know, about <laughs> the artwork, 
Um, does the artwork actually exist without you being next to it? And I said something like, yes, it does. Yes, of course it does. Mm. And then I tried to explain these kind of experiments I'd done with kind of like, you know, inserting information in, with the art, you know, like the wings of the aeroplane that I mentioned earlier. With mm. like, and then she said, uh, that sounds very complicated. I said, no, it's not. It's very straightforward. And then she went, um, she said, this is why we always prefer to work with the artist's widow. <laughs> Which was I found hilarious. Yeah, I said, oh, okay. So I went, okay, well, I'll I'll pass your details on to my widow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- thanks for that, one, guys. There was one. There was one other. Hang on, this not the job. I'll just wait for this to finish. I'm nearly there. Oh. So, just the the, the closing thing was um, it, it, again. It was this sort of it felt ever so melodramatic and Eastern European. They asked me this question. They said, but Chris. How do you see your legacy? How do you see your legacy? And I thought, oh God, what a strange, melodramatic question. And I kind of, I gave it a lot of thought. I went, my legacy. I suddenly went, um, probably something a bit like the old lady's burnt out house. <laughs> so you have to go through, yeah. go through a bit of shit to get to the. Well, no, I just got kind of, to. I see it quite bleak. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, Chris, yeah, I no. Kind of you... like, I feel as if I've spent a lot of my life incredibly idealistic, living this sort of very idealistic approach to making my artwork and um, slowly realise I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, look, the best is yet to come. This is what, this is, yeah, the best, the, actually the best is yet to come. That's how, that's how I view things now. Oh, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Chris. On that twisted story, <laughs> on that twi- on that twisted story, I'll draw to a close. Okay. But um, ah, oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And before My pleasure. We, before we finish, could yeah. you just give everybody your your website details, your contact details, whatever you whatever you uh, ha- have people can contact you and what you're on if you're on Facebook and Instagram and all of those things. Yeah, so I'm on uh, yeah, Facebook, Instagram. I'm even on Twitter, but uh, my but obviously it's difficult to spell my name. So my website is chrisdobbo.com. So Chris, D-O-B-O, chrisdobbo.com. And uh, all my social media is there. And uh, there's even an email you can contact me. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been such a fascinating conversation. Um, hearing about you and your work and also just it's yeah it's just been really lovely talking to you really entertaining thank you for me too <laughs> yeah brilliant um and thank you everybody to, for listening to uh the perception podcast um and i'll see you again next week and um yeah please like and follow and share and subscribe and comment let me know what you want to hear more of So next time on the Perception Podcast. Bye.